welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. We're doing a series, at least I hope you've been doing a series, I was, I've been away, but has she behaved herself? She meant to have started the series two weeks ago, right? On, the, on Genesis, good, we got that right. We're talking about four great events and four great characters, and uh, of course the first great event that we read about in Genesis is creation, and then uh, last week Ruth would have spoken about the fall, and this week we're talking about the flood. And uh, did you know that there are hundreds of cultures around the world that has a story within their traditions of a cataclysmic flood sometime in the past? From the Incas in South America, the Native Americans in North America, our own indigenous people in Australia, from Egypt to China, from Greenland to Russia, even in Scotland, all of these places have ancient tales of a terrible flood and all of the stories go back thousands of years before they had any contact with Christian missionaries or the Bible so they didn't get it from reading the Bible Uh, and in fact anthropologists have found nearly 300 different cultures with the same story from all over the world and many of them depict only a few people surviving a flood in a boat In fact, there's a picture from China that's two and a half thousand years old that shows a boat with eight people in the flood. And in India, there's a story again involving eight people surviving a flood. And the main character in the story in India, go the Indians. We have a few, right? Um, The main character in this story is depicted as, in inverted commas, a quote from well, probably some Sanskrit ancient language, but in English, a man who was righteous among his generation. That's the story. Sound familiar? Well, let's look at what happened exactly from God's word. Genesis chapter 6, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw beautiful women and took any of them they wanted as their wives. The Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they're only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. And interestingly, when you read from the Bible then, you see the ages of people that had been in some several hundreds of years declining down to about 120. And um, now, of course, there's a lot of debate about who exactly... uh, Well, yeah, read verse 4. In those days and for some time after, giant Nephilites, the Nephilim, lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. So theologians debate about who were the sons of God and where they came from. And they've got a few different theories. But one thing we do know that just like the stories of the flood, many cultures have legends of giants and heroes from their history. And so this shows that they were, to some extent, based on fact, as the Bible teaches us. 
Um, we read on, verse 5, it says, The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth and broke his heart. The Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. But, praise God, but Noah found favour with the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time. And he walked in close fellowship with God. Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt, filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. So God said to Noah, I've decided to destroy all living creatures for they've filled the earth with violence. Yes, I'll wipe out all, I'll wipe them all out along with the earth. Build a large boat then from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long, 137 metres, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening. Don't you love it? It's just for old people like us. You sort of, you know, think in terms of inches and feet every now and then. Um, like someone says their baby's, you know, 3.2 kilos. You think, well, what's that in real terms? How many pounds is that, you know? How tall are you? I'm 100 and... No, 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 no. What are you, six foot or what? You know, so here is a little bit for the old school non-metric people. Leave an 18-inch opening before, below the roof, all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle and upper. Look, I'm about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on earth will die. God's mentioned this a number of times. He's getting the point across. I think he's wanting to make sure they really understand. But I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring a pair of every kind of animal, a male and a female, into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird and every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that goes along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. Notice they will come to you. He didn't have to go chasing around. God can move the animals in this direction. And be sure to take enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Well, let's just stop there. It sounds rather incredible, doesn't it, the whole story? But let's just remember the Bible is the word of God. And... And therefore, it, it's clear, it, it's accurate, it can be completely trustworthy. Now, I'm not going to go into any kind of deep scientific evidence that supports the Bible account for the flood for two reasons. We don't have time. And secondly, it's not my forte. I am just not that scientifically minded. I don't have a problem just believing the word. I got an encounter with God uh, initially when I was younger and a number of times over the years that I figure I just... Take it on board, whatever God says. Um, about as scientific as I get is uh, reflected in something I came across the other day. It says this, science says that we need at least four basic elements to survive, water, air, food and light. Jesus said in the Bible, I'm the living water, I'm the breath of life, I'm the bread of life and I'm the light of the world. So science is right, we need Jesus to live. <laughs> Ba-boom. <laughs> so there's my, there's my scientific approach to life. <laughs> But there is plenty of scientific evidence for the flood and for the creation account and, in fact, for everything that the Bible tells you. 
And there are many scientists who are Christians and who are able to show how the Bible and science are completely compatible. I've got friends who are scientists with master's degrees, PhDs, who are committed Christians and they have no problem believing the Bible account. In fact, Ruth is more scientifically minded, more inquisitive, and she has done plenty of, kinds of, plenty of reading uh, of this kind and research along these lines, and she's very happy to answer any of your questions over coffee afterwards. Um, uh, well, she'd like to send that to Luke, but he's not here this morning. So he also, scientific, uh, qualified science in our, scientists in our family, and he also uh, is able to you know, grapple any apparent contradictions and see that God can uh, you know, uh, cope with clever people. Because uh, one thing I do know that you know, people are imperfect and even clever scientists don't always follow a truly scientific method uh, when researching something. In other words, they may be looking for evidence to support their presupposition, their theory that they really want to prove true. And then if you look hard enough, you can find something that appears to support your theory. You know? So, for example, shells have been found on mountains and in deserts, which, to my mind, I think, well, that sounds like a flood that covered the earth. But, of course, if you want to, some scientists can can explain that away by talking about shifting tectonic plates and stuff like that. So uh, the important thing, I think, is to know that if God is God, he can do anything. He can produce a flood. He can create the earth in seven days or seven minutes for that matter. Uh, so and if you do research things scientifically, I think you'll find answers that, that do support what the Bible teaches. And speaking of answers, there is an organisation called Answers in Genesis who have done a lot of this, a lot of research, they have scientists involved. And, um, and the president, Ken Ham, who is an Aussie, as you may know, has organised to build a full-scale replica of the ark that I would love to go to. It's in Kentucky in America, and it's called the Ark Encounter, and it proves that it could house all the necessary animals. And there it is. So it's part of a, basically a, a theme park. They raised the money, and that is a full-scale replica. It's bigger than a jumbo jet. If you've been at the airport lately and you've stood near a 747, uh, it's like 137 metres, so bigger than a football field, and you can see the scale of the, of the thing when people are around there. Next picture, I think, shows the original um, rainbow usage, as God intended it. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's beautiful um, and reminding people what the rainbow originally meant. Uh, and then I think the next photo shows inside. And you didn't know that Noah had flat screen TVs uh, and was able to watch Netflix. No wonder. You had to, had to have something to survive a whole year. So I've never actually read that passage. I must have missed that in my translation. But Ken Ham's done his research. So he's built a complete replica, including the flat screen TVs. Um, isn't that awesome? Wouldn't that be great? Dale, come on, what are you doing? Do I have to go to Kentucky? You know, come on, there's a bit of spare land. Summersby somewhere. I'll lend you a hammer, you know. Um, okay, so we read on. Genesis 7. So everything was ready. The Lord said to Noah, go into the boat with all your family. For among all the peoples of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Take with you seven pairs, male and female, of each animal 
I have approved for eating and for sacrifice, and take one pair of each of the others. And take seven pairs of, also take seven pairs of every kind of bird. There must be a male and a female in each pair to ensure that all life will survive on the earth after the flood. Seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down on the earth, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I've created. So Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. He went on board the boat to escape the flood, he and his wife and his sons and their eyes. With them were all the various kinds of animals, those approved for eating, for sacrifice, those that were not, along with all the birds scurried along the ground and the other animals along the ground. They entered the boat in pairs, male and female, just as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came and covered the earth. So it then goes on and says, um, the underground waters erupted from the earth and rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. So it's coming from both angles. Continued to fall for 40 days, 40 nights. And um, it says he went in there uh, and the animals were in there and two by two they came. Uh, and so, and it says, interestingly, in verse 16, the Lord closed the door behind them. So God's hand's very much on this. It's not all man produced. Um, and then finally, in verse 19, you notice it says, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. And all the living things on the earth died. Everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. Verse 23, God wiped out every living thing on the earth. People, livestock, small animals that scurried along the ground and the birds of the sky all were destroyed because birds could fly for only so long. They, you imagine they've got to land somewhere and get food somewhere and so they're just going to die of exhaustion and starvation. The only people that survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. The floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days. And then in Genesis 8, I'll give you a bit of a synopsis. Uh, you uh, probably know that the rain stopped the water stopped flowing from underneath, and they began to recede. Four more months later, the ark rests on Mount Ararat. Um, another couple of months later, they noticed mountain peaks. Then he started sending birds out to see if they could land anywhere, but they kept coming back. But then one day he sent out a dove, and it came back, and it had an olive leaf in its beak. And then he sent it out a week later, and it didn't return. So it's obviously found somewhere to land and nest and then a year after the flood came the earth was finally dry enough and God tells Noah and company to head out imagine what a sight um, so and then he's called Noah's called to build an altar he worships God with the sacrifice of the approved animals um, which is all part of the planning which is all very good, but I always wonder what it would have been like for the animals that were one of the seven pairs because they're all getting in there and they're saying to each other, how come there's two of everybody but then there's 14 of us? And then they come out and see the sacrifices and go, ah, you know, bummer. Um, Genesis 8.21 says, The Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I'll never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And then if you jump to Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah and we read from verse 7 
God saying, be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. And God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants, with all the animals that were in the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I'm confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. And God said, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you, all the living creatures for all generations to come, I have placed a rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds and I will remember my covenant with you, all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. What an amazing story. But there's, there's more here that... There's more than just a story. There's a lot we can apply to our lives today. Obviously, we can learn from Noah. Right? We can learn that living a righteous life has its rewards. In Noah's case, a very dramatic result, uh, escaping the flood. We learn that obeying God is also a really good idea, um, even when it seems very strange, because Noah appears to have built the ark nowhere near water. It's possible that people hadn't seen such big, bodies of water certainly not that they were about to see uh, but Noah obeys God without questioning we also see that persistence is rewarded because theologians tell us that he took somewhere between 50 and 70 years to build the ark so imagine if he was the kind of guy to get a little bit slack and lazy and be a you know a little bit slow and was only half finished when the first raindrops started to fall, that would be a problem. Uh, and so we, we learn from Noah, and some, we, can, we can learn from him, but, but we also learn about God. And, um, and because although the story features Noah, it's, it's just as much about God as it is about Noah and the, the other stuff that goes on. And three things specifically that I think we can take from this that tell us about the Lord. And the, the number one is God has standards. God is holy, uh, and that holiness is not to be messed with. He is perfect in his holiness, and he has a perfect sense of justice. And that means that evil and wickedness and sin needs to be dealt with for something, for justice to be upheld. And we know that from, in a base level. You know, if someone's done a crime, we think, well, it's only right that there's some, you know, punishment or justice or you know, restitution or some result. Something should be done about that wrong. And of course, this is at its highest level, an entire planet of people just doing the wrong thing in God's eyes. And we like to think of God being loving, and that is very true. But love also embraces truth and justice and the need for righteousness. And, uh, and so this account just shows us how abhorrent sin is to God and and he doesn't delight in judgment but it is just the the right and just result for people who resist him whose sin remains and who who end up coming before a holy God and so I, I think we we should have that as a takeaway in a good sense the first interesting the first mention of righteousness in the Bible is right here where it says Noah was a righteous 
and blameless man. Or he was, some translations say, just and perfect. Well, of course, he wasn't perfect. And the Hebrew word for righteousness that, that is used here is commonly used to relate to men and women. But it's not the same word used to describe God as righteous. So, um, and the word perfect usually is translated or it means more to be uh, morally upright. Uh, so Noah is human. Noah is imperfect. Uh, but it just means that he had the qualities that God was looking for in a person. Wasn't perfect in himself. Wasn't completely self-righteous. But he was countercultural, which is really something we, we should learn from Noah as well, in that he was prepared to fear God, trust God, obey God, regardless of what other people were doing or saying. He was standing up for what he knew to be right in spite of rampant sin that was against God, a culture and, a, and lifestyles all around him, a corrupt generation. He had the, the, the backbone, the, the fortitude to say, no, I obey God, I fear God, and I trust that we can have that as a takeaway as well. And uh, there's a message there for us. Um, and then, of course, when Noah and his family survived the flood, he makes a sacrifice to God, just as many others in the Old Testament after him would do. And that covers over his sin and the sin of his family. But like all these Old Testament believers, they're just being kept, they're being managed by their faith in God until their faith could be fully realized and rewarded in Christ, who's the only perfect sacrifice. Because as you know, since Jesus made his life a sacrifice, there's never been any other need for another sacrifice. But the Old Testament is full of sacrifices, temporarily covering over the sin to avoid God's judgment. And in fact, Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So you read about Abraham later and others, the righteousness that comes by faith. So they're, they're declared righteous, but, but because of their faith in God. And interesting side note, you only read of Noah's walk with God and yet his whole family are covered and protected, in a sense, by his faith. So, you know, individually, we've all got to make a decision as to what we do with Jesus and how we follow God and what we're doing with our life. But there is something in there, isn't there, about the power of a father's authority or, or, or any parent's influence over their family. So whether, whether all those family members had a strong personal faith in God before the flood, we, we don't know that, but... But they were blessed that their dad did. You know, they were covered. And one thing is for certain, I reckon when they came out of that boat, <laughs> look around, I reckon they had a sense of the fear of God afterwards. I reckon some of those brothers might have been saying, I don't know about you, but don't mess up. Look what can happen. You know, where's, where's Fred? Where's Jono? Where's those mates of it? They're all gone. You know, so just let's walk carefully, brothers. You know, and so... The fear of God is a good thing. And, and uh, you know, in our day and age, we want everything to be nice and sweet. And God is gracious and God is loving. But, you know, uh, the Bible says, work out your salvation with 
fear and trembling. That's the New Testament. Yeah. So I think there's something to be drawn from this, and a, a sense of awe and reverence for God about flip. Look what God can do, and He's allowed to. He's God. You know. Um, second thing I think we learn about this about God from this is God's grace. Because on one hand, yes, he's got judgment that he's willing to bring, but Noah found favour. In fact, one translation says in Genesis 6-8, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So Noah obviously benefited from God's grace because, all right, the unbelievers found judgment. But to a certain extent, God's grace was evident and spread and available to everyone because uh, as I mentioned, theologians figure that it's probably 50, 70 years for him to build the ark. Everyone's going to wonder around the place, what are you doing? Noah's no doubt going to tell them, God's told me, and why he's building the ark. Uh, and so then they would have had a chance, even if they are going to get wiped out in the flood. They've still got a chance to make amends, make uh, up for their lifestyle. Um, and then, of course, you see God's covenant that he makes with Noah after the flood, which again, is God's grace because he doesn't have to make a covenant. It's not a deal that Noah forces God into. God's willing to make these covenants. And again, we see that in other parts of the Old Testament, different covenants. And then there's the rainbow, which is a sign of new beginnings in this dramatic, cool, beautiful way. Um, and God is now still showing us his grace. Every time we see that, it's a reminder that he is not going to wipe the earth out again in that way. Um, and so we are, when we see a rainbow, I believe, we are to think of the mercy and the grace of God. And, um, and then, of course, you know, we see this parallel that just as Noah and his family were saved by entering into the ark, we are truly saved when we find shelter in Jesus. You know, and... Um, uh, you know, that, no, you know, Noah ensured the physical survival of his family. And when we put our faith in Christ, of course, we enter into saving grace and ensure spiritual survival. And, uh, and destruction came and uh, God calls to Noah, come, come into the ark. And, uh, and of course, when we receive Jesus, the, you know, the Holy Spirit's calling us. And then he's also giving us the protection, the comfort, the guidance that Noah and his family had in a physical sense in the Old Testament. And then the door. It's a great parallel because God provided the door. God closed the door. God's hand was on the door that saved Noah, that kept him in the ark. And, of course, Jesus is the door. And so we enter through uh, him and through grace. And then the third and final thing that I think we see God in this story is God's return. Because Jesus refers to this story in uh, Matthew 24. His, uh, the last passage I'll, I'll put up here today um, is at the, yeah, verse 36. Jesus is speaking. He's saying, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. What are those things? The end of the world. You read through the end of the book of Matthew. Uh, and then, of course, you can extrapolate in you know, Revelation and other parts of the Bible and Daniel. Uh, prophecies about how the world will end. Uh, and Jesus said, no one knows exactly when it will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Fascinating. When the Son of Man returns, he says, look, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, 
the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realise what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That's the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Wow. And in fact, there's another couple of verses just after that. Jesus said, understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time for the Son of Man will come when least expected. And so that's sobering and important for us to remember that just as in Noah's day, there will be a day when people are not expecting the end of the world. And God will bring that end. Let's make sure that we're not so afraid of climate conditions or man-made nuclear potential or all sorts of other stuff. God is in control and he knows how long the earth's going to last and he has a plan and all you've got to do is make sure you trust in Jesus and you're ready. Yeah? Because as you put your faith in Christ, you've got, bang, your plane ticket to heaven right in your back pocket. And that day will come. We don't know exactly. No one knows exactly. We don't need to know, but we do need to know that we're ready. Amen? And I think Noah's story is dramatic, instructive, and challenging for us to go, wow, I don't want to be like those other people. And I don't have to be because this time God's not taking just eight. He'll take as many as put their hand up to say, I'm following Jesus. Yeah? And let me finish with a quote from Billy Graham. Oh, God bless Billy Graham. He wrote this not long before his death. He said, The ark is a symbol of Jesus Christ. In this day when the clouds of judgment are beginning to gather, Christ is the refuge. You must cross the threshold and pass into the ark. Accept Christ now as your saviour before it is too late. Are you in? You may be close, but are you inside? The universal and terrible storm is coming. The days of Noah may be soon upon us. Are you ready for the day of judgment? Even if the world does not end in your lifetime in a cataclysmic judgment, the moment you die, you will be the end of the, it will be the end of the world for you. The world that you live in will die with you. Are you ready for death? Are you ready for the judgment that is to come the moment you step into eternity? Well, it's gone very quiet in here. Let's make sure we don't miss the boat, so to speak, and we bring as many of we can, many other people as we can on board as well. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.